All right, well, we're in assurance. We're talking about assurance. I mentioned last week that the normal way we preach is to have a text that we work through and we explain it verse by verse and we go through a book of the Bible and that's the normal way. But uh, we also feel that at times it's good to single focus ourselves on a topic and that's what we're gonna do uh, over the summer is a topic of assurance of your salvation. Um, last week, I began by telling a little bit of Martin Luther's story. Martin Luther's story, the man who was kind of the spark plug of the Reformation. He was the one that nailed the 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg and thus set off the Reformation in the 1500s. Now I want to start or fast forward from that day or that year, 201 years later, a man named David Brainerd was born. Now, I don't know if you've heard David Brainerd. He's less well-known than Martin Luther, the reformer. He was a missionary in America in the 1700s. He only lived to be 29 years old, but he lived an extraordinary life. He was, though, only 29 when he died. He only had four years on the mission field. His life remains to this day one of the most influential um, lives that has ever been lived, especially when you're thinking about its relation to missions. The reason for this, in part, is because his friend, David Brainerd's friend and contemporary, Jonathan Edwards, took his journal after he died and published it. A terrifying thought for those of us who keep journals. The life and diary of David Brainerd, I have right here, has never gone out of print. Since the 1700s when it was printed, it has been food for the soul of many Christians. It's quite simple. It's like finding someone's journal and leafing through it and reading about their inner struggles. It's powerful. In fact, so many people have commented on it. John Wesley thought that every preacher should, quote, read carefully over the life of David Brainerd. Henry Martin, famous missionary to, the, to, to India and to Persia, had experienced after reading his diary something like a second conversion and wrote that he was at length fixed in a resolution to imitate his life. William Carey, you may have heard, was a missionary to China, was influenced by Brainerd. Robert Murray McShane preached in Scotland under the influence of David Brainerd. David Livingston went to Africa, having been influenced by David Brainerd. Jim Elliott gave his life sacrificially for the Indians that he was trying to reach and did so because he had a strong desire to imitate the life of David Brainerd. It might cause you to ask, what's so powerful about the book? What is it that when you read it, you're just driven to think great thoughts of God and of Christ and to serve Him in ways that might even cost you your life? Is it that He's so tremendously strong and you get inspired by His strength? Is it His unstoppable drive? His unflagging conviction? His remarkable talent? His extraordinary zeal? His great faith and courage. It's actually none of those things. You find when you read the life of David Brainerd 
that the main reason it's so extraordinarily powerful on the people who read through it is because you find that he was a man of extraordinary weakness. Extraordinarily, palpably weak. He knew it. And yet in his weakness, he did all he could to live for Christ. And the journal is so raw and so honest that when you read it, you sense that this man, though weak, though struggling, he's kind of like me. I feel weak. And yet this man did so much for the Lord, maybe it could be that I could do something like that. This is a lesson for us that one of the greatest dangers we face as a church is not our weakness, but the belief that we're strong. One of the biggest problems that you'll have in your life, if you let it, is the illusion that you're a strong person. Your weakness isn't your biggest problem. It's the fact that you might think you're strong. And if we as a church come wearing costumes of strength, masks that hide our weakness, we will die a slow death. But when we admit that we're weak and we admit that we struggle and we admit where we're really at, not acting strong but coming with full-hearted honesty, raw, saying to one another, this is who I am, this is where I'm at, well, that gives God a weakness that He will use powerfully. I wanted to read to you a couple of His entries just to get you a sense for this man. This is 1743, April 7th. He writes, appeared to myself exceedingly ignorant, weak, helpless, unworthy, and altogether unequal to my work. It seemed to me that I should never do any service or have any success among the Indians. My soul was weary of my life. I longed for death beyond measure. The next day, April 8th, was exceedingly pressed under a sense of my pride, my selfishness, bitterness, and a party spirit in times past while I attempted to promote the cause of God. Its vile nature and dreadful consequences appeared in such odious colors to me that my very heart was pained. A couple days later, April 13th, my heart was overwhelmed within me. I verily thought that I was the meanest, vilest, most helpless, guilty, ignorant, benighted creature living, and yet I knew what God had done for my soul at the same time. Sometimes I was assaulted with damping doubts and fears whether it was possible for such a wretch as I to be in a state of grace." It's amazing that a person that we see as so holy, so obviously passionate about the Lord, is at the same time internally wrestling with the fact that he's even saved. He he wrote April 9th in a previous year, no creature stands in need of divine grace more than I, and none abuse it more than I have done and still do. He had this extraordinary sense of his own unworthiness, his own need of Christ, even to the degree, like I read previously, that he thought he might not even know the Lord. He wrestled, he struggled with genuine assurance. Am I, is it real? 
Is it real? I love the Lord. I, I want to serve Him. I want others to love Him. But I see the sin in me. This, this other law in me that is this, this power in me that seems to be pulling me inward into my flesh. And it's so bad compared to the holiness of God. Can it be that I'm even saved? There are people, I think, even maybe among us who have this sensitive conscience. They, they understand that God is holy. They understand that they are sinners. And it makes them afraid. They, they, they even maybe go in and out of this doubt that maybe I'm not right with God. Maybe, maybe my sin is, is so repugnant to this holy God, there's no way He could ever save me. Or maybe there are some of you that you know you're, you're saved, but the presence of sin in your life has caused you to think that there's no way God actually likes me, that He doesn't want to hear from me, that I'm not really welcome in His presence. I go to the courtroom of the king and I look around and I go, I don't belong here. That person can belong here. That person can belong here, but not me. My past is too dirty. My heart is too distracted. I'm too much a sinner. There's no way that God would want to talk to me. He's a holy God and I'm a vile sinner. How would He ever even want to hear from me? Why, why should I even pray? Why should I bring these things? He doesn't care about these things. This is all related to the subject of assurance. How do you know that God loves you? How do you know that you're redeemed? Are you sure <laughs> that God actually likes you? That He wants you into His presence? That He wants to hear you in, in, in your prayers? That He wants to walk with you? That He will never abandon you? Do you know that? So we're going to talk about assurance. All of this is so important. We talked about last week. One of the reasons it's important because there's so many people who have false assurance thinking they're saved and they're not. There's so many people that, that have genuine salvation, but they don't experience the joy of assurance. And so there's all these reasons that we need to talk about this issue. Now, to understand it, though, we need to understand there's two sides of this coin. On one side, we have the issue of subjective experience. Your subjective experience. That, that, that means the way you experience your salvation. Okay, so, so some of you might have the joy of salvation, the confidence of assurance, that you don't doubt and you don't despair and you feel that you are close to God and you don't ever have a shadow of a doubt that that's true. Well, that's your experience. And some people might have genuine salvation they have been objectively redeemed by Christ, and yet their subjective experience wavers, like David Brainerd. They, they sometimes are not sure that it's really theirs. They sometimes are not convinced that they have genuine faith, or that the faith that they have is enough to save them, or that they've repented enough to get right with God. And so they, though they might be genuinely redeemed, are wavering in their subjective experience. Now, I think it is God's desire, this is what we talked about last week in part, that God desires for all His church to subjectively experience the joy of salvation. Amen? He wants His children to be confident. Come to Me, all you who are labor, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
He wants you to experience the rest. He wants you to experience the confident assurance of drawing near to the throne of grace. There are books in the Bible, 1 John for instance, that are centered around the idea of you knowing that you're genuinely converted. God desires that you enjoy the subjective experience, the confidence, the assurance of your salvation. No good father wants to leave all his kids doubting whether he really loves them. God's not that way. He wants you to know. And yet we also know that in our lives, we sometimes will doubt, we sometimes will despair, we'll sometimes grow afraid, we'll sometimes worry that maybe at the bottom of it all, I peel away all the layers and I get God before me and I look at Him and I just think He doesn't even want to look at me. There's no way He really loves me that much. Yeah, He did Christ, He sent Jesus. And so that, you know, Jesus fixed all that stuff about our relationship, but, but really God doesn't love me. Sure, maybe Jesus, but, but God doesn't want to save me. He doesn't want to hear from me. And so to get the subjective experience of the joy of salvation, we need to build on the objective realities of the gospel. So this is before we get to the experience, which is good and what God wants for all of us, we have to build a foundation of what does the Bible say salvation is. If we build on a faulty foundation with all kinds of cracks and fault lines, we won't be able to have the joy of assurance. We'll always be shaky. We'll always be worried. But if we build on the true foundation of what the Bible says salvation is, we'll be able to grow in our assurance. So we are going to start not with how we address the subjective issues that we each face, We're not going to start there. We'll end there at the end of the series. But to start, we have to lay some foundations, just like building a home. Foundations first, then we build. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about the objective uh, realities of the gospel on which we build a foundation for subjective assurance. To do that, I want you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to look at a gigantic sentence. Open up in your own copy of God's Word. Toward the end of your Bible, there will be a book, a letter written by the Apostle Paul called the Letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And we're going to look at chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 3 to 14. I have in my office a 250-plus page book on this single chapter. (laughs) I'm not going to be here all day. And so we're not going to be able to cover everything in Ephesians 1. Although someday I would love to do it because it is glorious. We're going to look at some of the highlights of verses 3 to 14. And in this single sentence, we are going to lay the groundwork for our assurance. See, this is what happens. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as he begins to write this letter, it's like his pen is on fire. And as soon as he begins to write, he's just spilling out these wondrous praises to God. The whole thing flows in a, almost unstopping. See, in English, we've added commas and, and, and periods. In Greek, the whole thing's just one long sentence. He doesn't want to stop praising God. He's continuing to praise God and Christ and the Spirit for what they have done to accomplish our salvation. 
Even commentators I've read struggle to find words that capture the magnificence of this portion of Scripture. One commentator said it's like a magnificent gateway. Another called it a golden chain of many links. Another scholar called this section a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and shifting colors. William Hendrickson, the the scholar, compared this portion of Scripture to a snowball tumbling down a hill. You got the image in your mind? Picking up volume as it descends. It's like it gets better and better. And you think it can't get any better. And it gets better. And this is this whole section, this passage is so amazing. Another commentator, it's a racehorse gaining speed. Another commentator, it's an eagle soaring high up into the clouds. Another said, it's an overture of an opera, the climax of the show. This is so fantastic. Humans are literally scraping and clawing through the language that they have to try to find a metaphor to capture how amazing this is. This is fantastic. Ephesians is a masterpiece among masterpieces. And it starts with probably the best possible sentence ever written, all in Greek right here. We're going to read it, and we're going to find in it three unshakable foundations for assurance. Unshakable foundations. I'm going to say them. And then we're going to read through it, and I'm going to see if you guys can identify them as we read. The first unshakable foundation is the eternal plan of the Father. The second unshakable foundation is the perfect redemption of the Son. The third foundation is the permanent seal of the Spirit. Let's read the whole sentence, verses 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Whew! That's a sentence. That's quite a sentence. See, this text starts in eternity past and moves us forward to eternity future, and in doing, lays a rock-solid, immovable, unshakable foundation for our salvation. Let's start with our first unshakable foundation. We are secure because, number one, of the eternal plan of the Father. We are secure, 
Christians, if you doubt, if you lack assurance, if you sometimes wonder, we are secure because of the eternal plan of the Father. Let me read it to you again, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Look at verse 4. Even as He, that's the Father, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He, that's the Father again, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. We can stop right there. You could see in verse 3, the praise begins to break out from the pen of Paul upward to God, praising Him for His wonderful blessings. This blessed God has given us and the us in context is every Christian, every saint. You know that because you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus. He's referring to believers. The Father has given all the saints, every Christian, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You could imagine a river that's flowing down from heaven, emptying heaven of all its blessings, these spiritual blessings pouring out on all God's children. God has not held back any blessing for His children. It's all designated for the children of God. If there are blessings in heaven, they are given to His children. We've been singing a new song here at the church, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. Fantastic song. I love it. And the second line of the first verse makes this claim. It says, there is no more from heaven left to give. You know where that comes from? It comes from this text. Heaven is being emptied of all its blessings. Not that there will be no more blessings in heaven, but that all the blessings in heaven are being given to the children of God. You might say in your life, well, it doesn't feel like my life's blessed. It doesn't feel like I have every blessing. Yeah, I get I have some. Well, what the Bible teaches is that that blessing has been designated for you, but it will be experienced in full, not in this life, but in eternity. God has all blessings ready to give. He has given some to His children now, and they are all going to be His children's at some point. And eventually, when we get to heaven, the blessings that God has ordained for us will be fully and completely experienced by His children. This is the Father's doing. He has given us this blessing. Now, now you might pause, and this is, of course, the reason why Paul is praising God. He has every spiritual blessing. He's just bursting with praise to God. You might ask, well, why? Why do I get these blessings? Why do Christians get these blessings? You ever ask that question? Why me? Why, why do I get the blessings of eternity, the blessings of forgiveness, the blessings of the Holy Spirit, the blessings of this inheritance? Why do I get this? Is it because God saw something in me that was really good and He liked that and so He chose me to, to get the gospel? He saw that I would have faith, and so he's like, oh, he's got a lot of faith. I'm going to give him a reward for that faith. Is it because you met some standard that other people didn't? Is it because you asked for it and other people didn't? Is it because you had enough of faith and other people didn't? Why? Why you? And the way you answer that question is so critical to how you understand your standing with God. 
because look at what the Bible says. This is why people have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. This is why the saints are experiencing every, every spiritual blessing. Look at verse 4. Even as He, that's God the Father, chose us, chose us, He chose us in Him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world. It wasn't because of anything you did in this life. The reason that we as believers get to enjoy every spiritual blessing is because in eternity past, before anything was made, before Genesis 1, before you could do right, before you could do wrong, before you could obey, before you could disobey, God in eternity past knew you and chose to love you. Look at verse 5. It couldn't be more clear. Verse 5, in love, He predestined us, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. You, you can consider this. Go back, go way back. Go before the mountains, uh, before the, the oceans, before there's birds and, and fish in the sea, before there's trees uh, on the, uh, in the mountains and before there's any created thing, before there's a star in the sky. Go back to the silent solitude of the Trinity where there is nothing but God. And there, God chose you for salvation. There He is brimming with love and His love overflows into His creation. And he, though you did not exist and though you did nothing right nor wrong, He chose to adopt you. Do you see that? In love, this intense divine love, He predestined us for adoption. He wanted us to be His children and Him to be our Father. And so He chose to adopt us. This is fantastic. This is, this is showing that we didn't have anything to do with this. You might say, well, I'm a Christian because I sought the Lord. Okay, why did you seek the Lord? I sought the Lord because I, it was me. I cried out to God. Well, why did you cry out to God? I felt my need for Him. I knew that I needed Him, and so I cried out for God. Why did you feel a need for Him? There's millions of people in the world that need God. Why did you feel a need for Him? Well, I read the Scriptures, or I listened to a sermon, and, and that, that helped me understand my need for Him. Well, how did you come to read and understand the Scriptures? How did you come to understand that sermon? How did you come to feel those th things that you felt at that moment that you needed to cry out to God for mercy? Listen, God is behind it. And here's the message that is getting at right here is that God chose you before you could ever choose Him. Did you make a choice for God? Absolutely at some point. But why did you make a choice for God? It's because God in eternity past already chose you. Isn't that what the message of 1 John? We, or our only way we can love God is because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. I made a choice to follow Jesus, sure, but I never could have chosen God if He had not chosen me first. I would have never come to Him unless He chased me down. I would have never come to trust Him if He had not first opened my eyes to see who He was. The Bible is very clear. Look at chapter 2 of Ephesians. Verse 1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the prince of the power of the air. See, people who are dead don't make choices. You don't, corpses don't choose where they're going to be buried. 
Once you're in the grave, you stop making choices. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we couldn't choose God. But the Bible says that in eternity past, before Genesis 1, before there was a created universe, God looked ahead in love and He set His love on His children. And so your salvation is not rooted in some temporal decision you made in this life. It's rooted in the eternal decision of the Father. And therefore, it's unshakable, unbreakable. This is extraordinarily humbling. This, this is hard for us to accept if we have pride that wants to stake some claim in our salvation and say, no, I did it. It was me. I made the choice. I remember talking to someone who really despised this reality. No matter how much I was trying to show them in the Scriptures that God has chosen us for salvation and that's the only reason we get saved. It's because He chose to predestine His people out of love. He wasn't having it and so I just decided to ask him this question. I said, okay, let me ask you this. Imagine you go to heaven and, and let's just imagine in heaven you can see people suffering in hell over here. You're here enjoying heaven. They're there in hell. Would you be able to say in that moment that the ultimate final reason why you're here and they're there is because you made a good choice and they made a bad choice? And he said, yes. And I said, I don't think I can take that credit. Because if it were up to me, guess what? I would have never chosen God. I would have never come to him. I would have never searched for him. In fact, that's exactly what Romans chapter 3 says. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. There is no one good. No, not one. No one can come to him on their own terms. The only way we can come to the Father is if the Father draws us. John chapter 6. And so he chooses us from eternity past. But here's the beauty of this reality is that it forces us to admit that salvation is all of God. And if it's all of God, what does that mean? It means it's infinitely secure. Because, listen, your salvation is only as secure as who you believe caused it. If you think you caused it by some decision you made or some faith prayer you prayed, then your salvation and your assurance is only as strong as your faith at that moment or your willpower at that moment. It's resting on you. And that's not a strong foundation. But if you believe that your salvation is rooted in eternity past out of the unstoppable plan and purpose of the Father that it is His sovereign will to save you and so He chose you to be in Christ, then listen, your salvation is unshakably secure. The foundation cannot be moved. This is not only in Ephesians chapter 1. This is all over Scripture. You could find it in almost every book of the Bible. But if you want to see it more, go to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. I wanted to show you this, another text, just to drill this home to even draw out more about how God chose us and why this is so, so precious of a truth for us as we're fighting to believe the promises of God and to have assurance. And you can start in verse 27, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. And there he says, but God chose, there's that same word, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak 
in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. <laughs> if God only chose wise people, people would think people are going to heaven because they're wise. If God only chose strong people, people would think they go to heaven because they're strong. What does God do? He wants to save people in such a way so that the only person who can ever get the credit for their salvation is God. And so who does he save? He saves weak people. He saves foolish people. He saves the lowest of the lows. He saves the dregs of society because those are the people who know that they can't get saved unless it's God and God alone. And so that's what the church is, isn't it? None of the people here who are genuinely converted are saying that they're saved because of some great thing they've done. They're saying, I, I'm the weak. I'm the nothing. I'm the foolish. And it's all grace. If you want it even more clear, look at verse 30. And because of Him, that's the Father, you are in Christ Jesus. Could it be more clear? Why are you in Christ? Because of Him. You want to, if someone to ask you, it would be a legitimate answer to the question, why are you a Christian? Because of God. That's a good answer. That's what Paul says. Because of Him, you're in Christ. It was God's eternal decree to save a people for His own glory. It's part of His eternal purpose. And you and no one can undo God's eternal decree to save His people. Listen, Christian, you are eternally secure in this that if it happened in eternity past, it's not going to be undone in the present. If it happened in God's eternal mind, in the ages of bygone ages, in eternity past, it won't be undone by you. <laughs> you can rest. God chooses a people for Himself. And because the salvation is rooted in the sovereign plan of an almighty, all-powerful God, then your salvation is totally, completely, utterly secure unbreakable, unchallengeable. It is forever. Here's a second reason why we have an unshakable foundation. We are secure because of the perfect redemption of the Son. So it's not only the Father's love that wants to predestine a people for Himself, it's also that the Father has provided perfect, complete redemption through His Son, Christ Jesus. Look at verse 7 in Ephesians. Sorry, go back to chapter 1 of Ephesians. Verse 7, he says, in him, that's Christ. In him, in Christ, we have redemption. Redemption through his blood. We, as the saints who have been chosen in eternity past to be God's adopted people, we have been given to Christ and Christ has accomplished our salvation by redemption through His blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins totally forgiven according to the riches of His grace. You see, this, this is what we're seeing in this glorious sentence that God the Father in eternity past has purposed to redeem a people for His glory through His Son. He has given a people to His Son. His Son has taken these people to go redeem them and totally, completely accomplish salvation on their behalf, redeeming them through the cross, the blood of the cross. You can almost imagine it in heaven. 
in eternity past, the Father and the Son having this conversation. The Father says, I'm going to choose these people for my glory. And the Son says, great, let's do this. I will go and redeem them. And the Father says, you know that in going to redeem them, it will cost you your life and that you must shed your blood to accomplish their redemption. And the Son says, for the joy set before me, I will gladly endure the cross. I'm their good shepherd. I will lay down my life for the sheep and I will lose none that you give me. And the Father says, all right, I send the Son. And the Son says, it is my desire to obey the Father. If I go to the cross in obedience to my Father, it's worth it. And he goes to accomplish the redemption that the Father planned by going to the cross and rising from the dead. This, this, this kind of conversation between the Father and the Son is not hard to imagine when you listen to some of the things Jesus talked about in the, in the Gospel of John. I want you to turn there for a second. You can almost just tell that the Father and the Son had this plan in eternity past. Let's start in John 6. You can go to verse 37. And in verse 37 of John chapter 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The Father has given some to the Son to go redeem, and the Son is going to get them. Verse 38, I have, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So the Father is sending the Son. The Son is going to do the will of the Father He's going to do it perfectly. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The son is saying, I'm going to go do what the father told me to do. He called me to come to earth. He told me to go redeem a people and I'm going to accomplish it. I'm not going to lose any of them. I'm going to go get all the lost sheep and I'm going to bring them all home. You could go to chapter 10, turn over a couple pages further. To make this even more clear, he talks about he's come in verse 11 as the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Father, I'm going to go get the sheep. I'm going to die for them to secure their salvation. I'm going to protect them like a good shepherd would. I'm going to watch over them. Well, is it going to be secure if, if that's our our salvation is, is this. Well, look at verse 27 of chapter 10. I read this last week. It bears repeating. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You guys see this? This is fantastic. Eternity past, the Father chooses to redeem a people for His glory. He sends the Son into the world to accomplish this redemption. The Son goes to the cross, sheds His blood, lays down His life for the lost sheep so that they could be forgiven, so that the sins that they deserved to pay the penalty of hell, Christ paid for Himself. And He paid for them in full. He accomplished salvation totally. And so that you, Christian, don't have to pay for your sin anymore. You're washed clean. The redemption in Christ is total. 
Why? Because that's God's eternal plan was to bring people to himself. That's his desire, that's his love is to have these people for himself. And that's what Christ went to accomplish is to bring them in. Of course, we couldn't come in our own flesh to the presence of God because we're too sinful. Christ paid the penalty for our sin. And then Christ gave us as a free gift his own righteousness. We couldn't be more welcome into the presence of God having been totally cleansed by the blood of Christ, having been totally clothed in the righteousness of Christ, having been welcomed and invited in by the Father, having been pursued and redeemed by the Son. Christian, you are clean. You are totally redeemed. You don't have to pay penance. (laughs) You ever after you sin, feel so guilty that you can't just talk to God in that moment? You gotta pay some penance. You gotta feel bad a little bit. You gotta kick yourself around a little bit. Then you can go to God. God doesn't want you to come immediately after you sin into His presence. That is not the Gospel. Because the Gospel is saying, right now and the moment you sin, And the moment after you sin, in fact, all past sins, all present sins, all future sins are totally, completely, absolutely washed away. And you're totally, completely clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. You are clean. You are redeemed. You couldn't be more welcome into the presence of God because of Jesus Christ. Not on your own strength, but because of Him. You're redeemed through His blood. You maybe don't doubt your salvation, but maybe you doubt your welcome. You're doubting you're welcome to come to God because you couldn't think that God could possibly love you. Listen, the gospel is that He loved you in eternity past. He loved you by sending His Son. He loved you on that cross as He paid for your sins in full. He loved you as He rose from the dead and gave you His own righteousness. And that you, by faith alone, not by works, not by earning, not by your performance, are fully given the complete righteousness of God credited to your account as if it is totally yours. It's yours. So come boldly. This is the whole point of Hebrews. Come boldly with confident assurance into the throne room. Man, that'll fire up your prayer life. That'll change the way you approach God in your prayers. You'll pray big and you'll pray confidently. You'll come boldly even after you've sinned big because that's how gracious our God is. Now, if you're not a Christian... Here's the good news. You could become one right now because the welcome is extended to you as well. That through Christ, you can have the same exact access to the Father as any other believer in this room. There's not like some step that you got to go through that we've all done and you haven't. Here's what we've done. We've despaired of ourselves and we've looked to Christ. That's what it is. We've despaired of any hope in ourselves. We've turned from ourselves in repentance. And we say, Christ is all I have. He's my only hope. And through Christ, I have full and complete access to the Father. And listen, there's no degrees of that. Once you're in, you're fully and completely in. And your access to God is complete and total. And you can come to Jesus right now and be totally forgiven and totally made righteous, justified forever, and have the same things true of you that's true of every other Christian, that you are safe and clean and redeemed. And if you are not trusting Christ, I invite you, come now. Come now in repentance, turn from your sin, trust Him, and experience this great joy of salvation. It's free. If you're thirsty, come drink. If you're hungry, come and eat. 
This is why God sent us, or sent his son, so that all who are bearing the load of sin can have their burdens taken off their backs and experience the total joy of forgiveness and reconciliation to God. You don't have to work for it, you just trust in the Savior. Our eternity is secure because the Father planned it in eternity past, because the Son came and redeemed us, perfect redemption. Thirdly, we are secure because of the permanent seal of the Spirit. I want to skip down to verse 13 in chapter 1. In Him, again, that's in Christ. That's what God does. He puts us in Christ. So all that Christ has done is credited to us. We are in Him. All that's His is ours. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I want you to notice something. It doesn't say that when you heard the gospel of salvation and began to work harder, it doesn't say when you heard the gospel of your salvation and you began to change your life or turn over a new leaf. It says you heard it and you believed it. And the moment you did that, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. I've mentioned the Father and the Son in how they accomplish salvation, but we serve a Trinitarian God, three in one. The Spirit is a part of this salvation as well. And here, we are taught that the moment, the nanosecond you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God gives the Holy Spirit as a seal on your life. A seal. You say, what does it mean to be sealed by the Spirit? You get this image in your mind. It'll help you. Imagine hot wax over a fire. gets melted. becomes a sort of liquid. You drip it on an envelope to seal it. It shuts, and then you take like a signet ring, and you push it down into the wax, and it leaves an impression there. Uh, a seal represents three things. It shows something is genuine. It shows whose property it is like a cattle brand or something, and it renders it secure and safe. It seals the letter. It seals the envelope. It keeps it secure. God, the moment you believe, puts his seal on you. He says, this is a genuine child. He says, this is my property. And he says, this person is eternally secure. The moment you believe, you don't have to get to a certain measure of maturity to get this. This is the lowest of sinners, the weakest of saints. This is the, the lowest of the low, the foolish, the weak. The moment you trust Him, the Spirit is there sealing you. He's saying, this is legit, and this is mine, and this is now secure forever. And this is God's act. You don't work for this. This is a gift. And then look at verse 14. The Holy Spirit, who is our guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. This is a guarantee. In some translations, uh, instead of saying guarantee, it says down payment. <laughs> that the moment you believe, you are given a down payment. That eventually, God will give you all the perfect inheritance that He will give to the saints. But until then, what you have now is a down payment. 
The Spirit is a down payment. In other words, God made you a promise that He will not break. That the moment you believed in the gospel and you took Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you despaired of yourself, you turned away, and you looked to Christ, the moment you did that, God made you a promise, and that promise is that for all eternity, He will never let you go. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And though the subjective experience of your salvation may waver from time to time, the objective reality is that when you came to Christ, when you trusted Him, it was sealed. It was done. It was over in a sense. That a salvation was credited to your account in full. And that was the promise of your full and future inheritance someday. Now, this doesn't mean, and we'll get to this in the future, this doesn't mean that those who are, you make some profession of faith at some point in their life can just go on living however they want and have no change in their life. That shows that the faith isn't actually genuine. Genuine faith, wherever it is, is accompanied by the seal of the Spirit. And thus, when people come to Christ, they are forever safe. Friends, do you see the wonder of these things? Do you know what it is to be loved by God? In, in the eternal ages past, He loved you. And so His love for you isn't contingent on things you've done. And then He sent His Son for you to die in your place on the cross and to rise again. And so whatever sin you've had carrying with you, it's been paid for. And then He gave His Spirit to dwell within you as a seal and a promise for all eternity. You're secure. You're welcome. You're loved. You can come to God with utter and complete, total confidence like a child running into the lap of his daddy. Friends, this is so wonderful that I actually think we cannot understand it apart from the Holy Spirit. I get that because two times in the letter to the Ephesians, though it's only six chapters long, in two different occasions, as Paul begins unpacking these magnificent realities, he, he begins to pray for the Ephesians. He's like telling them, this is how God saves sinners. And then it's almost like he knows, you can't really get this unless I pray for you. So I'm going to pray for you now. Look at it. The whole section that we just looked at, 3 to 14, culminates in 14, and then he has a transition, verse 15. Do you see this? Take a look in your own text. Verse 15, for this reason, okay, what I just described, this amazing salvation, for that reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Well, what's he going to pray for? What's the content of his prayer? Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So I gotta pray that you would have your heart open to see these magnificent realities because if the spirit doesn't open up your heart, you're never gonna get it. This is so wondrous that if you were to see this, you can't just yawn and move on. You got to see this, and so I'm begging the Spirit to give you life, give you eyes, and give you vision. Verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which 
he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those of us who believe? You see that? I got to pray that you understand these things. Look at chapter 3, verse, 5, verse 14. For this reason, he does it again. Just again, the extravagant, amazing grace of God given to the church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, what is he going to pray for? Watch this. What's he praying for? That you being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Do you see that? This is something that surpasses knowledge and yet he's praying that we would know it. This is, this is the nature of the mystery of our salvation. It is so wonderful it's beyond human comprehension. It is something that we can only know in a sense because it is unknowable how great it is. And so he prays that we might know something that surpasses knowledge. What is that something? The love of Christ. Christian, you have no idea how much God loves you and how secure you are and how welcome you are into his presence. Gather up all the devils in the world and all the enemies of God and all the accusers and let them point their finger at you and let them accuse you. Let them point out your sins and your faults and your frailties. They can't undo your eternal salvation. Pile up all your sins, all the things you've ever done. If you had all if you had a million lives and in every one of those lives you committed million mortal sins and you piled those up, the grace of God would be sufficient to forgive them and the blood of Christ would be sufficient to wipe them away. God's grace is unstoppable, immeasurable, unshakable. For those who have trusted Christ, it will never waver. And you live now under the Niagara Falls of tremendous, unstoppable grace. Your salvation isn't because you prayed a prayer at one point or you made some decision, although you may have done that at some point. Behind that act of faith that you gave your life to Christ at one point was an eternal plan of the Father, was the perfect redemption of the Son, was the everlasting permanent seal of the Holy Spirit. You are secure. You couldn't be more secure. And so what are we going to be? We're going to be like David Brainerd, who in the midst of his deepest despair and difficulties, fought to reflect on the grace of God. February 10th, 1742, he writes, I was exceedingly oppressed most of the day, with shame, grief, fear, under a past, or sorry, under a sense of my past folly, as well as present barrenness and coldness. 
When God sets before me my past misconduct, especially any instances of misguided zeal, it sinks my soul into shame and confusion. It makes me afraid of a shaking leaf. I have no confidence to hold up my face, even before my fellow worms. But only when my soul confides in God. When my soul goes back to God, when I go back and think of how He saved me and the perfections of His redemption, when I think of that thing, when my soul confides in God, I find the sweet temper of Christ, the spirit of humility, solemnity, and mortification and resignation alive in my soul. He speaks of pouring out his complaints to God and finding in God what he needs to experience the subjective joy of assurance. We'll all be there at some point. We'll all be at times losing our spiritual warmth, growing spiritually cold, experiencing the depths of our own sin, and maybe even going into the shadow of despair. What do you do? You confide in God. You reflect on the gospel. You go back to what is objectively true, that the Father has chosen a people for Himself that He will unmistakably redeem, that the Son has perfectedly or perfectly paid for all their sin, and the Spirit has permanently sealed them. And you say, I'm safe. And you worship. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in this great salvation. We cannot understand it. The love of Christ surpasses knowledge. So we ask, like Paul did all those years ago, that you would help us to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ for us, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord, thank you that you will answer the prayers of your children. In Jesus' name, amen.